Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Regular listeners to the program know that a couple of months ago, we began these Ministry Watch extra episodes. We'll continue our regular Friday weekly roundups. Those are the episodes that I do with my co-host, Natasha Smith. But these Ministry Watch extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep, you might say, with uh, some of our editorial partners. And today I'm pleased to have back on the program, Paul Gladder. Paul is the editor-in-chief at Religion Unplugged, and he's also the director of the journalism program at the King's College in New York City. He has a wide and varied journalism career that included a long tenure with the Wall Street Journal. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Warren. Good to be back with you. Well, yeah, it's great to be with you as well. And Paul, I, I, I don't, I don't think this will come as a surprise to you, but just in case, I want to make sure you've heard that since we last spoke, we had an election. Did you hear that? Yes, I, I caught that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've got to tell you that here at Ministry Watch, um, partly because there's just so much noise already out there in the world, we've refrained from saying you know a whole lot about the election. Though we have covered some aspects of the election season, including the role that evangelical leaders played in the campaign. But your contributor, Clemente Lisi, took a deep dive into Biden's religious faith. Uh, he, of course, is a, a practicing Catholic. Uh, what did you discover in that story? Yeah, I mean, I think the headline itself is uh, interesting. Clemente notes that Biden is the second Catholic U.S. president in history, alongside, of course, JFK. Um, one of the things I discovered is that uh, the amount of polarization out there and people upset about the election is quite real because I see we've got 26 comments, include, including from a lot of people who are angry that we're publishing this piece or any piece that says Biden was elected. Um, uh, so that was that was kind of, that's kind of something fascinating. Um, uh, you know, I, I received someone uh, asked for a correction to this saying. Biden wasn't elected, so that was inaccurate. And two, he's not a Catholic because he supports abortion. So, you know, my response on those two points was, uh, well, AP and many other media has reported he was elected. Many foreign leaders, including Merkel and Macron and others, have identified him as elected. So we're merely reporting what can be verified as fact on that front. And then regarding his faith and why Clemente's story identifies him as Catholic. I think Clemente gives lots of documentation here, Warren. Um, and, uh, you know, this Biden himself identifies as a Roman Catholic. And so from my vantage point, even though he has changed positions on abortion over the years, I don't know that he nor other Roman Catholics are excommunicated for their position on that front. So given that we can't judge his heart, I think we have to take his word that he is a believer as a, he's a Catholic believer as he at least that's what he says he is, and that's why we did that story and identified him as such. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that he is certainly uh, a member of the church. Now, I guess we could have an interesting philosophical or theological discussion about whether uh, the church, any church, the Catholic Church or any other church, should disfellowship or excommunicate a member who uh, rejects some of the core teachings of the church. Um, my position would tend to be that they should, but <laughs> the, um, but clearly, as you said, that's not happening. I mean, he's not been excommunicated from the church. He's not been disfellowshipped as 
I can tell. Uh, whether he should be or not is an, is an interesting question. But in some ways, and this is something that I thought was interesting about Clemente's story, uh, in, in some ways he's had a little bit of a, I don't want to say love-hate relationship or an off-again, on-again relationship with the church, but it has been a complicated relationship with the church. I know the story, for example, has an anecdote about Joe Biden visiting the Pope and refusing to kiss the Pope's ring. Um, that story kind of stood out for me. Yeah, you know, and to me, that that's a fascinating anecdote that was from a religion news service feature about Biden and it talked about a 1980 meeting when Biden, then Senator Biden, was meeting Pope John Paul II, JP II, as he's known, um, who, and, and it said that uh, Biden did not kiss the Pope's ring, as, which is a customary greeting when meeting an esteemed cleric. And later it came out that Biden's mother insisted that her son not kiss the Pope's ring. And why that's fascinating to me, in one sense, you could read it as, oh, well, he's not really Catholic. In the other sense, you could read it as politically protecting himself from the criticism that a, a, Catholic, a Catholic president of the United States or any country, um, uh, that one should question their loyalty. Are they more loyal to the sovereign nation of which they are president, or are they more loyal to the Vatican? Um, and so I think the, uh, the, story got into, the story got into that, and it shows that I think Biden was politically protecting himself from that kind of criticism. Yeah, that's the way. I, that's what I took away from the story as well. And you know, you mentioned John F. Kennedy, um, who of course ran for president in 1960, and and won. Uh, but for him in 1960, that really was a big issue. He was the first Catholic president. There was there was a lot of discussion, a lot of concern. I think some of that discussion and concern came from a place of true religious bigotry, uh, but I think also some of it came from. You know, maybe in retrospect, maybe looking back on it, we might still call it bigotry. But, but I do think that there was a lack of understanding um, um, on the part of many Americans about the Catholic faith and about the practices of the church. One of the things that was interesting about Biden's election this time around was that um, it was kind of a non-issue, except for that issue around how can you be a cat practicing Catholic and support abortion. Nobody said that I, in my world that he was disqualified or uh, should in any way be penalized for being a Catholic. Is that what you heard as well? Uh, I think so. I think you're right. It was that one issue. And in fact, I mean, uh, Biden, as I understood, it used to be pro-life. And in fact, some more progressive left Democrats, uh, you know, criticized him for that, that he's flip-flopped on this issue or changed mind over time. And I think some, a lot of uh, things I've read suggested that he kind of changed his mind uh, away from a pro-life position be, uh, in a tortured way that, that at heart maybe he still is sort of pro-life. And I do think Clemente's story brings out a point which is um, he speaks like a Catholic in a lot of his speeches and remarks. He uses certain language around, you know, the soul of a nation or, or uh, uh, sort of Christian lingo, Catholic lingo, um, uh, in a way that was quite interesting. And certainly, I mean, I think the, he and... He and uh, Trump were battling over both the uh, the entire Christian vote and the Catholic part of that vote. And I think when we look at the results, we parse these results, uh, some of these states like Pennsylvania, um, Ohio and others uh, have high percentages of Catholics. And 
you know, one could see that uh, he was not a terrible candidate uh, for the Democrats uh, to, to have going in some of those swing states. Yeah. Well, um, what I'd like to do, Paul, is pivot in our conversation just a little bit. And, and uh, we're not going to spend the whole uh, time talking about politics, I promise. But you guys did have a couple of pretty interesting stories about politics on your site uh, in the last couple of weeks. And one of them was by uh, Bruce Barron. Uh, he said that Biden's win could, in fact, be a gift to evangelicals. I got to tell you, I don't think a lot of evangelicals see it that way right now. But, um, you know, what did Bruce have to say about that, Bruce Barron? Yeah, well, and Bruce, you know, has an interesting vantage point on this because he works with the World Evangelical Alliance uh, Theological Journal. He's executive editor there, and he's written books on U.S. religion and politics. Um, let's see how he, he ends this. Uh, he, you know, he says, Evangelicals have understandable fears about what a Biden administration might do. Perhaps their freedoms might be narrowed, as in Canada, where a Christian university that affirms a traditional view of marriage can't have a law school. But even should they encounter such restrictions, if they respond with compassion, grace, and principle, they may advance their ultimate goals more than if they had remained shackled to Donald Trump for four more years. So I think he's, I think Bruce is sort of running calculus here of the long-term uh, consequences uh, and strategies involved with these two different candidates and trying to say, hey, maybe don't view the glass for those who are Trump supporters I think he's trying to say, maybe don't view the glass here as half empty, but consider how it might be half full. Well, we'll see, of course. I will say that whenever um, President Obama was president, and Biden, of course, was vice president, uh, the uh, International um, Religious Liberty Commission uh, went without a leader for for many months. In fact, it was well over a year before it finally did get a leader. Now, when it finally got a leader, it was a good leader. So I personally have some very serious concerns about religious liberty issues, not only domestically, but uh, international religious liberty issues under a Biden presidency. So I, I take Bruce's point on that. I do, though, think that the abortion question and same-sex marriage, however tortured Biden may have been whenever he um, flipped the switch and became pro-abort rather than pro-life, uh, it's hard for me to see how someone can survive as head of the Democratic Party these days unless he's pretty vigorously uh, pro-choice. Well, it'll be interesting to watch because I think a lot of, you know, we had a lot of more progressive candidates running against him whom he, whom he beat. Um, but you get the sense that the internal war of the Republican Party these last few years around Trumpism, na nationalism, populism, and, 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 and the future of all of that in the, that party um, well, similarly, I think we're going to have, a, like you point to, a different kind of war within the Democratic Party around, you know, centrism, uh, a, a place for uh, progressives, as well as people who are traditional uh, Democrats, who are people of faith in particular, um, who care about religious freedom, who might even be pro-life. You know, is there a place for them in the modern Democratic Party? And I think we will see. It's going to be quite fascinating. But I you know, back to Bruce's column here, I think Bruce points to a, a dynamic, which is that when Christians and conservatives embrace a candidate like Donald Trump, who many of hold held their nose about, I mean, he has a, an interesting line here from Jim Daly, CEO of Focus on the Family, who said, if I like 80, 90% of Trump's policies, I only like 20% of his tweets, you know, so that people didn't like his communication or, or other things about him. 
um, I think Bruce is saying there are consequences that come that come with that when you embrace power, um, but power is wielded in such a way that it, it creates unintended consequences. It can uh, some of those consequences can be damaging for future elections, like we, maybe we just experienced, or it could be damaging in other parts of culture. So I tend to agree with him with Bruce's line of thinking here, and I tend to agree with. Uh, James D. Hunter at the University of Virginia, who talks a lot about, you know, political power versus cultural power. Well, very good. One more story, Paul, before we uh, move along, and that is a story on your website by former Fox News producer Jake Densmore. He wrote an opinion piece um, that uh, hit a couple of really interesting points as well. First of all, can you quickly uh, tell our listeners what the story says? Yeah, well, so Jake Dinsmore was a former student of mine at the King's College who uh, worked at Fox for a few years, Fox and Fox Business on different shows as a producer. And, you know, I think uh, Jake has always been someone who cared more about Christianity and his faith than than, uh, partisan politics. And so, um, you know, he, he opens by saying, I grew up in a conservative Christian community that seemed confident it had all the answers from parenting and dating to pop culture and politics. Uh, so he talks about his background um, and how Democratic candidate would not have gone over well. So he talks about his own background a bit here and the history of what we were just discussing, sort of evangelical power politics of, from the 1970s and 80s projected forward. And then I think he's saying... Uh, Pro-life Christians have every right to be single-issue voters, but they ought to consider whether promoting the love, compassion, unity, generosity, empathy, and self-sacrifice that Jesus taught us in our communities is a more effective way to reduce abortions than fighting to make them illegal. They might also have the added bonus of being known for what they stand for rather than what they stand against. So, again, I think it's around overall philosophy here uh, that he's suggesting that Christians think more carefully I mean, we also had a podcast this week with a data journalist and political scientist named Ryan Burge, and he raised an interesting point, which is, if the Supreme Court outlaws abortion, how will that work for evangelicals? Is that what they actually want? Or is that the, is it like the proverbial dog chasing the car? Once you catch the car, <laughs> is that what you wanted? Or is it what Jake is suggesting is perhaps, is, is the pro-life position to be held in a way that is done uh, it, it, it is not just a legal fight and quest, but one that is more a ministry quest and one that is both a personal conviction and and uh, an area where one works from a compassion and a ministry standpoint in one's community. Those, to me, are interesting questions. Well, I think they are interesting questions. And I did take Jake's point, which is why I thought that article was interesting and wanted to highlight it. I, I will tell you that as a pro-lifer and someone who's relatively absolutist on the question, yeah, I would like to see abortion outlawed in this country. But what I also realize is that overturning Roe v. Wade is not going to do that. What Roe v. Wade is going to do is is just return the question to the states. And if we have lost the cultural conversation, if we have not made our case effectively in the public square, whenever this question gets returned to the states, uh, we could find ourselves eventually worse off than we are today. And so I do take Jake's point in that regard, that we that the way we uh, have that conversation uh, in the public square 
is going to make a difference in who we persuade. And we're going to have to persuade more people than are on our team right now if we really want to cause abortion to be illegal in this country and be um, not only, um, not not only uh, as my friend John Sonstreet says, illegal but unthinkable. But let, let me let me make one other other point about this article, and another reason why I found this article um, interesting, um, Paul, and just see what you think about this is that you know duly noted, stipulated for the record, God is neither Republican nor Democrat. But what I thought was interesting was the source that Jake is a former Fox News producer. And when Fox called Arizona, I believe it was Arizona, it might have been Nevada, but I think it was Arizona for Trump last week. And then over the weekend, whenever they called the election for Trump on Saturday, it appeared to me that a lot of Trump supporters uh, kind of turned on the network. Suddenly, Fox is no longer the network of choice for Trump supporters. Is that what it is? Have you noticed that as well? Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Uh and by the way, on this, on the piece, on the headline, I, I wanted to add the uh, Fox producer identification there because I thought it would be more clickable that way. And Jake allowed us to do that graciously. Um, but yeah, I, I do th- believe it's been a, several months here where I think Trump was getting more frustrated that Fox wasn't in his pocket as, as I see it. And I think that's a sign of the owner, Australian Rupert Murdoch, whom I used to work for when I was at the Wall Street Journal when he bought the, my newspaper. But I, I think it was a sign that Murdoch and his other you know, ch- children who uh, run the network, et cetera, own it, um, lead it, that um, they saw Trump as uh, kind of uh, when he's when they see they see the election is done and complete and they're not going to contribute to conspiracy theories. Um, if there's lawsuits, I'm sure they'll cover it. But uh, they did, in fact, seem to switch from fanboy, fangirl to slightly more objective uh outlet perhaps reputationally they realized they had to do that or they might suffer ratings or more criticism uh i think it's personally i think it's the right thing to do um and i think there's only one or two other networks out there that are more trump supportive right now uh so yeah it's fascinating to watch i wouldn't be surprised if we see trump get himself get involved in media he's hinted at that in the past try to buy a little network like al gore did after al gore lost and against bush um by the way, I want to say one thing too. You know, we certainly, in, in leading up to the election, we had a few pieces from interesting and very thoughtful opinion writers, and essentially evangelicals who were not for Trump, let's say, and like Jake, um, or or Jake's point, I think, was not that he wasn't for Trump, but that God is not a Republican. You know, that God is not partisan necessarily. And so we ran those, and we, I, um, I, we just didn't hear many pitches. It, any pitches, especially any thoughtful pitches at all from people who were advocating for Trump. Uh, we did run one piece by a contributor named uh, Princess Jones, who interviewed a woman from Staten Island named Ev- uh, Bevelyn Beatty, a black woman who is anti-Black Lives Matter and very pro-Trump. And that was a fascinating interview. And we ran it on Election Day. And she ended up uh, being attacked and, leg- you know, and, and stabbed in the back. She's okay. But uh, she coming out of a uh, watch party. So I just wanted to make a point that we were trying to listen and understand sort of different viewpoints from around Christendom, from uh, perspectives on the election. Well, very good. Duly noted on that front, Paul. Yep. Uh, well, Paul, listen, um, enough politics. <laughs> We've got to take a short break. But when we come back, I promise we'll talk about something other than the election. I'm Warren Smith. This week, my guest is Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged. You're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast 
and we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith with Ministry Watch, and my guest this week is Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged. Paul, I'd like to turn our attention uh, to uh, the story of a Hillsong pastor who resigned last week because of a moral failure. Uh, Carl Lenz uh, later admitted that he had uh, uh, an extramarital affair, and as a consequence, he was fired from his church, Hillsong NYC, Hillsong New York City. A lot of Christian media outlets covered this story, including Ministry Watch and Religion Unplugged. Um, your own Megan Clark wrote the story for Religion Unplugged, and I really commend that story to our listeners. But Paul, I want to go off script a bit and not just talk about the story, but ask you as someone who lives and works in New York, especially someone who works with a lot of young people, college students at the King's College, how big a thing was Hillsong in New York City? Right. Well, as maybe the listeners know, Hillsong came out of Australia and has uh, you know locations around the world, and they say about 150,000 people who, who go to Hillsong. They have a, a TV channel. They write lots of popular music that lots of churches use. So it's a real interesting cultural force out of Australia. And zooming in here on New York City area, the New York City location, as well as one in Montclair, New Jersey, were led by Carl Lentz, as you point out. And these were, I mean, of, of all the Hillsong branches, these were the star-studded branches. Lots of celebrities went to these churches and were drawn to the personality of Carl Lentz and his wife. Um Carl Lentz was a athlete in college, a basketball player, and he seems to get along very well with pro athletes. So he was he's friends and, and a mentor, a spiritual advisor to people like Kyrie Irving, um, uh, uh, Kevin Durant and many other players. And um, uh, the pop star Justin Bieber, there he's kind of has this interesting celebrity pull. I mean, even um, Donald Trump's ex-wife. I think it's Marlon Maples uh, in an interview in the New York Times talked about how much he loves going to Hillsong Church. And you see that other celebrities. So it's a very fascinating cultural phenomenon. I actually live in the same town where Carl uh, Lenz lives in New Jersey. And, and I visited the uh, Hillsong here in New Jersey. Uh, and I think I saw him, and Carl Lenz, there that day uh, preach and he and his wife lead worship. But we could talk for a while here about. Let me the, just let me interrupt you just for a second. Since uh, I didn't know that you had visited, I mean, did your theology, did your dogma meter go off? Did you hear anything that was uh, heretical that day, or did it all seem pretty normal? Well, you know, the day I visited, I really, uh, my wife. Let me put it this way: I don't want to crit you know, criticize other people for their their uh, theology. But I will just say there was at one point, I think, leaving the service, walking together, my wife and I said, boy, this this church isn't for us. And we talked about some of the things that were not for us. Um, and we were just visiting because we had missed our, our service at our own church that day. 
And I wanted to understand the cultural phenomena that was, that is Hillsong. And, but we both talked about what we didn't appreciate about the church personally for us, but we also, it was remarkable to see how that church, uh, more than any I've ever visited, really brought people together and seemed to just do an incredible job of sort of bringing a body of Christ together from different uh, ethnic backgrounds. And I do think, you know, uh, I don't know if I spotted what I would say heresy, but I, I think I did. I do think people heard tr- some truth there. Uh, so, you know, I guess I'm saying, you know, probably a mixed bag, depending on what your theology is. It, w- it wasn't for me. But one observation here is there's been some new things that came out on this scandal in the last day. Uh, one news outlet reported that his relationship with this designer in New York, that that he said he, he didn't tell her he was married. He only used his first name. It was a five-month relationship. She was Muslim. So there's a lot of weird things uh, relate about that relationship. Uh, and uh, all this being said, you know, Hillsong seems to have a lot of pastors. They've got, you know, thousands of people who go to these churches in the New York area. So one would hope that they have a leader, leaders to step up to fill the gap there. And I do think that the Brian Houston, the founder of the church, the way they communicated and handled the resignation was, in my view, pretty good. I don't know what you thought. Well, yeah, no, I'm pretty much the same. I was um, uh, impressed that they were so straightforward, that they were so forthcoming, that um, that they, they they did what an employer, you know, pretty much has to do, which is they they. Couldn't get into specifics, but then uh, Carl Lentz came out literally the next day and admitted specifically what had happened about the extramarital affair. And so I'm guessing that he did that. Um, for all kinds of the right reasons, uh, maybe maybe the church encouraged him to. It's part might be part of a restoration process, uh, and I think that you know this story was for, for all of its I guess you could say salacious or celebrity elements to it. From our point of view, it was worth covering uh, because, as you said, Hillsong has become sort of a cultural phenomenon. Even if you don't go to a Hillsong church. Um, there's a pretty good chance that if you go to a you know an evangelical church in this country in the United States today, you're probably going to sing a Hillsong um, worship song or hymn, whether you want to or not. <laughs> it's it's going to be it's the the that um, that um, uh, movement has infiltrated uh, churches that go well beyond the the Hillsong movement. So. Uh, so I do strongly recommend um, the the articles that you did, that Megan did, and then also we've got one or two articles on our side as well. Paul, let me pivot one last time in our conversation and sort of broaden the the conversation to the international arena because I know that you guys do a particularly good job there, and I wanted to um, give you a chance to talk about one of your stories. Um, it's a story about the situation in Armenia. In recent weeks, there's been um, a lot of conflict in a disputed region in Armenia called called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is kind of the border area between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, This is an extremely complicated story uh, to sort out, so I'm not going to try to do it or ask you to do it, except to say that some version of this conflict uh, has been going on for more than a hundred years in that part of the world. In other words, we, you know, it's it's funny. We often think about these conflict zones as being in Africa or maybe places in Asia. It's to me one of the things that's um, that's tragic, but also interesting about this story is that we've had this 
conflict zone in Europe, essentially, uh, going on for a very long time. Um, and if people want the background, of course, they can go to your story at Religion Unplugged. I say your story. It's actually done by a um, French journalist, an international journalist named Jade uh, Levin. But I think one aspect that I do want you to talk about here for a minute, um, Paul, is the fact that this conflict has shifted a bit from a territorial struggle over land um, a fight between Armenia and Azerbaijan over a place to, in some ways, become more of a religious struggle between Islam and Christianity. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah. Well, yeah. As you point out, it's incredibly complex, and so our team tried to, uh, you know, talk to experts in our network and carefully review and urge for context and history, which we always want in our stories. And you know, uh, as you point out. You know, Armenia, there's, this is sensitive in the sense, well, you've got a majority Christian country of Armenia, a majority Muslim country of Azerbaijan. They're fighting over territory, but religion and geopolitics uh, uh, inflames that, 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 that tension. Um, and so there's been previous wars here. And um, in the, for Armenia, you have also the fact that they endured a terrible genocide in uh, 1915 or so. Uh, where you know, a million people were killed, or more than that. And, and uh, you also have one of the oldest uh, uh, Christian communities and churches in this region. So, you know, one, it's dangerous to reduce this to Islam versus Christianity, but there, that's a little part of it, for sure. But there's also factors of, you know, Turkey is seemingly backing Azerbaijan. Russia is seemingly backing Armenia. And so you've got these larger powers involved. Um, you've got some bad blood between former Soviet states, being Armenia and Azerbaijan, and so there's 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 many things playing out here. I think most recently I, I was told uh, a Russian aircraft was shot down, and that may uh, cause Russia to be more involved. But and and who knows? Turkey also. Uh, but you know, Turkey was generally seen as in the genocide of Armenia. Turkey was seen as the villain, and Armenia the victim. So uh, now that Turkey's involved in this conflict in some way, whether it's selling weapons or there's, there's, there's a lot of tension around that. And so I do think, I think my main takeaway here is that religious readers of all kinds, including Christians should pay attention to Armenia, Azerbaijan, this conflict. And I do believe the best possible thing probably is a peace, a peace accord uh, and to move to diplomatic channels to sort this out rather than bloodshed. Um, the numbers are not really, and the weaponry is not really on, on the side of the Armenians right now. And I don't know that, you know, if we see a larger war emerge. Uh, so, but the stakes are high. The history is important. And uh, I do hope some of our listeners just start reading a little more on this conflict and paying attention to it. Well, I do too, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to highlight that story. I should also say that over at the Ministry Watch website, uh, we wrote a story about some Christian ministries that are working there right now, including uh, Mission Eurasia, uh, which is uh, used to be called the Greater Europe. Uh, I think, uh, oh gee, now I'm drawing a blank. I can't remember what the name of the ministry used to be, but it's uh, now called Mission Eurasia. We'll just uh, leave it at that. And also Samaritan's Purse. So uh, I think the good news is that some Christian organizations are 
are paying attention, as you said. I think more Christians should. Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, just to underscore, um, Paul, something that you just said, I mean, th- this has the potential. In, in some ways, what we're seeing between Armenia and Azerbaijan is a proxy war, bet- or put- it has the potential to be a proxy war between much larger powers, Turkey and um Russia. And that could be a very, very dangerous thing because, uh, as I said a few moments ago, this is not happening in some remote corner of the world. This is happening on the edge of Europe. Um, this is a, you know something that could spin out of control very, very quickly because even though our I appreciate what you said about diplomatic solutions for that area. It's also an area that has kind of been, you know, steadfast at resisting diplomatic solutions. There have been ceasefires that have lasted literally no more than minutes um, since uh, the 80s and 90s, whenever um, some of the other, whenever some of the Western superpowers, including the United States and France, tried to get involved there. So it's a big problem. It's a big problem. And I appreciate you guys covering it. Now, Paul, y'all reported this story, at least in part, because of your uh, international reporting fund. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That means, you know, we have uh, we have funds and donors that allow us to pay people like Jade, who've been to the region, who've studied the, the uh, conflict and can offer um, analysis and reporting that we think is helpful and unique. Um, our donors allow us to do that. And uh uh, we have wonderful journalists in different parts of the world who we can call upon when something's happening to offer perspective and on-the-ground reporting. Well, and because of our partnership with you guys at Religion Blog, we get to take advantage of that as well. So I'm really grateful for that. And I know with this story, she did a great job. She took a co- very complicated situation and made it, you know, if not exactly simple, at least a bit less uh, complicated and a little easier to understand. Paul, we've got to bring our time to a close, but let me just say how great it is to uh, have you on the podcast. I really look forward to these uh, monthly conversations with you. It's uh, kind of a little different from what we normally do at Ministry Watch, these kinds of conversations where we're talking geopolitics and and other um, types of issues. So um, really appreciate you being on the program. And before we go, just real quickly, uh, peek into your pipeline. What have you got um, coming down the road for us? Yeah, we've got some, you know, more coverage of the elections, I'm sure. And uh, we have, I think, some great features coming out soon on, uh, we have one from Nigeria about child brides and about Christian pastors who've been working on this issue to, you know, to help families not have to sell or allow their daughters to be married as children. So that's what we're looking forward to. We've got some videos and photos to go with that. And uh, so stay tuned for that one. You bet. We absolutely will. To find out more about Religion Unplugged and the stories that we discussed today, you can go, of course, to the Religion Unplugged website, religionunplugged.com. If you'd like to give to the International Reporting Fund that we just talked about, there's a link at the top of the page for that as well. To find out more about Ministry Watch, go to ministrywatch.com. And a couple of housekeeping items before we go. Uh, We'd love it if you would rate this program on your podcast app. Uh, The way algorithms work, the more ratings we have, the more likely it is that other people will find the podcast. So it's a great way to support the program, uh, even if you can't make a financial contribution. But of course, if you can, both Religion Unplugged and Ministry Watch are donor-supported, and we both have uh, real clear, plain, obvious ways (laughs) for you to give to both of our ministries right on the front page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. Here at Ministry Watch, we get database, technical, and editorial support from 
Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. Thanks to Clemente Lisi, Jade Levin, Bruce Barron, Jake Densmore, and Megan Clark, and the rest of the team there at Religion Unplugged uh, for providing content for the conversation that Paul and I had today. And of course, I'd like to thank my co-host and Religion Unplugged's fearless leader, uh, Paul Gladder. Paul, thanks for being on the program today. Thank you, Warren. Always great to be with you. You bet. I'm Warren Smith, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.